Hello, everybody, and, and welcome, and thank you all very much for coming. Um, my name's Mary Caldor, and I am the co-director of the Centre for Global Governance, which is actually now called LSE Global Governance. It was called the Centre for the Study of Global Governance, and no doubt Megnad will explain to you why at a later stage, but it was founded by Megnad in 19... 92. And so we thought it was very good idea on Megnad's 70th year? 70. <laughs> 71st year. 71st year that we should have this event to honour his life and work and all that he did for us at LSE. Um, there are lots of people who couldn't come and wish they could become, and I thought I would start, actually, because it's a very nice, by reading to you a message from Nick Stern, who really wanted to become. And he says, there are many very funny Magnad stories associated with his wonderful quick wit and irreverence and resemblance to Don King. We got that all the time. <laughs> One of my favourites recently was when he was accused in the press of stabbing Gordon Brown in the back after he had made some typically derogatory remark comparing him with his predecessor. When I asked Megnad what he thought about such an accusation, he said with outrage, I didn't stab him in the back, I stabbed him in the front. <laughs> uh, of course, Megnad has given his friends so much intellectual stimulation over the decades and lots of good stories. But of special importance for me is his quite extraordinary humanity and emotional support. In particular, when I was very down after the death of my father 18 years ago, Megnad walked me to and fro across Waterloo Bridge, helping me to understand the notion of acceptance, and he helped me greatly by relaying how hard it had been for him when he had lost his own father. I did, of course, receive much kindness around that time from many good friends, but Megnad was special. There is so much to celebrate about this extraordinary friend, human being and academic. I'm very sorry I can't be with you on the 28th and wish you all the very best. Thank you. So we at the centre have a lot to be grateful for Megnad, if only because he was a constant fount of new ideas and was constantly stimulating us in new directions. Uh, I think the key to understanding Megnad's quirky politics is to read his book, Marxist Revenge, which is on sale outside, which explains to you why Marxism and neoliberalism are actually completely consistent. And that tells you a lot about Megnad. The other thing <laughs> to know about Megnad is that he is the only true globalizer. And that is why uh, it was so important that he founded our center. Most people think they're for globalization, but they're only for some bits of globalization. They're for the free movement of capital or they're for free trade, or they're for human rights, or something like that. And Megnad is for all of it. So Megnad's for free capital movements, free trade, free labor movements, human rights, and, have a, and of course, 
internet and communications, all the things we variously mean by globalization. So in my view, he's the one real supporter of globalization. Hence, the importance of our center, which studies global the global challenges of our time. Now, we've got four wonderful speakers this evening, and they're each going to speak for 10 minutes, and then I think Megnad will say something, and then we'll open it to the floor for anybody who wants to make a comment, ask a question, uh, and we've got till 8 o'clock. So, and, and by the way, you can, all buy, you can buy at least two of Megnad's books outside, his novel, uh, which I very much enjoyed, and Marx's Revenge, which I've already referred to. So our first speaker is Charles Goodhart. He, he's a professor here at the LSE. Actually, are you emeritus? Very much so. <laughs> <laughs> but he's a big figure in finance. He's been the key moving spirit behind the um, finance Financial market. <laughs> 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 and it, that's been one of the great directions of Megnad's interest. And now, actually, we've got Danny Qua, who's joined us at the centre. We're able to take that interest back again at the centre, but we were lacking finance. And so it's great that Charles is going to begin. Thank you very much, Mary. Uh, I'd like to think that I've got quite a lot in common with Magnet, one way or another. We both arrived at LSE at more or less the same time, in 1965-66. And Magnet has remained here more or less without any gaps a couple of times on sabbatical ever since. I'm 45 years at LSE. That's a remarkable example of dedication both to scholarship and to this school. Uh, he was younger than I was when he arrived, and somehow he's always remained younger than I am. <laughs> now, uh, both of us have done much the same sort of thing. We both tried to put the political back into political economy. Though Magnat has taken that rather further than I have, having gone into direct uh, politics in many forms, which others will talk about more, and of course his, his various books on Marxism. And again, both of us have interpreted economics uh, very broadly. And while I can't follow Magnad in going so broadly as to write about Indian films and film stars, at least I have a daughter who works in that same, uh, same industry. And uh, both of us have founded a research center. The Magnad did it on his own. Well, I had to rely on the help of a future governor of the Bank of England uh, to set up the financial markets group. And both of us file our unread papers on the floor of our rooms. <laughs> and we know exactly where these papers are, but everyone else simply finds them sort of untidy heaps over which they fall. Uh, but Magnad is really totally in a class of his own when it comes to his warmth, to the, his ability to welcome all around him, and to his generosity. In a sense, he is a veritable LSE Buddha. Uh, in th that respect, I would like to add um, that he's got a lot in common with Mary's father, Nicky Caldor, and uh, whom my wife and I came to know very well when we were undergraduates uh, at Cambridge. And as you may recall, uh, Nicky and his uh, 
Hungarian colleague, Tommy Balog at Oxford, uh, used to be known as Budapest, <laughs> and, uh, which was, of course, entirely appropriate, because Nicky was a Buddha, and went... <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, in the remaining um, few minutes, I thought I'd just actually like to reflect briefly uh, on a few issues relating to current global governance issues. Um, first of all, uh, the famous economic imbalances. Now, the main problem with economic imbalances is that there's an asymmetry on, of pressures in that the deficit countries will always be forced by market and other kinds of pressures to have to adjust and restrict their activities, while it's much more difficult to bring the surplus countries who are at least as culpable for causing the imbalances into line, because the surplus countries always tend to believe that they're surplus because they're behaving in a wonderful way and um, you know, much more efficient than anybody else. Now, under some circumstances, this doesn't matter. But when the deficit countries, as of now, are more or less, sooner or later, absolutely forced to bring about a very considerable restriction with a degree of austerity at some point and, uh, and in very considerable amounts. We will have a major deflationary pressures around the world unless the surplus countries actually do their stuff. And there's been a considerable reluctance on their part to do that. I think that the recent agreement in Korea and the proposals that Tim Geithner put forward to try and limit the extent to which any surplus country could run a current account surplus was a major step forward, whether or not it can be enforced. Uh, the second point I'd like to make about, uh, talk about is the politics of crisis adjustment. Uh, in the interwar period, uh, we had a major economic crisis, and the effect of that within Europe was to cause political extremism, both on the right and on the left. One of the very beneficial effects of, or beneficial developments uh, that has occurred in Europe uh, since then has been that the economic difficulties that have been faced, in, and some of the difficulties in many countries have been fairly extreme. I was in Latvia very recently. Has not brought with it any such equivalent tendency towards political <coughs> extremism, which I think bodes very well for the development of Europe in the longer term, whatever may be the short-run difficulties that the peripherals may have. But counter to that, uh, there's a worrying degree of developing political extremism and, and wide-scale differences uh, occurring in the United States, which is going to make it very difficult for them to agree to any coherent and consensual plan uh, for uh, amending their particular problems. So what will happen on that front uh, is difficult to, to tell, uh, but I think that there are longer-term dangers uh, if the polarization of politics in the United States should remain or continue to the extent that it appears to be at the moment. My final point on this, on, on some of these global governance issues, uh, reminds me of the old joke about the, um, uh, the Soviet military parade. 
soldiers. You get first the soldiers and then the tanks and then the the aircraft and then you get the... Um, the missiles. The missiles. And then finally, at the end, there's this little truck with uh, eight people in it in gray suits. Who are these? Uh, said a, a bemused onlooker. Uh, they're the economists. <laughs> well, why are they there? Well, you should see the havoc that they can create. <laughs> well, the particular area of havoc that I want to mention in my final comments on global governance is I think one of the, the worst ideas that got developed in economics over the last 20 years uh, has been that uh, the incentives of management, particularly in banks, should be aligned with those of shareholders. The reason why that's such a, a disastrous idea, and it has been put into operation, has been that limited liability shareholders have a payoff function that looks just like a call option. And that re the returns to a call option are much greater if there's more volatility. So effectively, shareholders actually want and push management to take on more <coughs> risk. Northern Rock was the darling of the London Stock Exchange about three months or four months before it finally collapsed. And what I think that we need to move towards is a remuneration structure that takes away the incentives of managers, financial managers, from being aligned with shareholders to being aligned much more broadly with stakeholders in general. There are various ideas for moving in that direction. Uh, so I have a fear that I've added, since I have a captive audience, three rather quick ideas on global governance in the meantime. But actually very important ideas and things that we have to think about, alas, because actually they're rather worrying ideas too. Um, now our next speaker is Perna Sen. Perna was one of Magnad's PhD students. She wrote about gender issues. She uh, is a research associate still of the LSE. She's associ been associated with our center. Now she heads the human rights Division, is it called, yeah, of the Commonwealth I, Secretariat? Yeah, it is a <laughs> it, it's a contradiction in terms. Exactly. <laughs> That's great. All right, thank you, Mary. Um, Magnad, as you say, has been a, a, here a long time, but a friend of mine and a great support for almost 20 years. When we first knew each other as teacher student, but on the Masters. Um, uh, and through my PhD, he was a very informal but very important support, though not a oh, formal supervisor. It doesn't matter. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. And, and, and on the gender issues is, is absolutely right, because I want to address a bit of that today. And my PhD was on women's resistance to domestic violence, and Meghnad was a, a massive, massively important person to whom I went with lots of issues and queries, um, including about... Is it, yeah? Yeah. Uh, about what I was doing. So, um, given that uh, Meghnad is actually a stalwart advocate of better lives and the treatment of women uh, and of women's freedom, I'd want to draw on that thread tonight in celebration of the man who is not Don King. What I'd, <laughs> what I'd like to pay testimony to, to tonight is a broader set of interest and study that is Meghnad's life and work, and Charles has already made some reference to this. 
I want to say a little bit about his interest in cultural artistic life and how it speaks to the interests not only of the social sciences more broadly, but to Megnad's life and the ways in which I believe he has given his time towards issues and practices of freedom and justice, not only how we think about them, but how we behave. Perhaps not everybody in this room will be terribly familiar with Megnad's uh, interest in the diversity of issues around social justice. These range from very interesting conversations we've had about state education, to services and time he's given to drug rehabilitation, um, to those who've been abused, uh, whose rights have been abused. And these have been hugely important in conversations I've been able to have with him to draw different strands together of work. But more recently, in, uh, in the last, I think about 10 years, Megnad, you'll correct me, no doubt if I'm wrong, Magnet has written on culture and cultural issues and drawn links to his interests in economics and politics and justice. And in case we have any doubts, let's note the importance and pride he gives to this area of work. In 2004, he published a biography, as you mentioned, Charles, of uh, Indian film star Dilip Kumar, uh, which I believe he described as his greatest achievement. Um, he's written about films, but he and I are on a promise to write about writing too, um, about which I would like to share something tonight. And it's a taste for Magnet who's been waiting, I was going to say patiently, but not so patiently for me to produce what I've been working on for him. Um, and the author whose work we are exploring is Sharath Chandra Chatterjee, a Bengali author who lived 1876 to 38. He's not likely to be known by very many in this room, so let me quickly say a little bit about him. Um, he was born in a village in West Bengal in a family that struggled for money. Uh, of that, he wrote, My childhood and youth were passed in great poverty. I received almost no education for want of means. From my father, I inherited nothing except his restless spirit and his keen interest in literature. The first made me a tramp and sent me out tramping the whole of India quite early, and the second made me a dreamer all my life. I think that's a beautiful, a beautiful description of himself. He lost his wife and his first son of one year, uh, uh, one, years, one year of age, in 1906, and it's reported then that he turned to a very wide range of study, of sociology, of politics, philosophy, health sciences, psychology, and history. A few years later, he turned his hand to painting, too. Sharad Chandra's father left his family to work in Bihar, and he himself relocated to work in Burma. He did know literary success in his time, but he was also seen as a troublesome native by the state, which banned one of his books, Bothar Dabi, allegedly for preaching sedition. And then again, uh, under the penal code, um, for, the dra for dramatic performances of this work. Shara Chandra wrote um, about 100 years ago he had a remarkably open, liberal and progressive intent. Let's be honest, his, uh, his writing, I think, retains a radicalism in much of contemporary Bengali society. He explored the bounds that fettered lives, including the privileged, at the time. He asked for humanity in the understanding of frailty of those who had not succeeded according to dominant norms. He explored the lives of women, shaped by custom, yet challenged by them every day too. Meghnan and I have had conversations about Sharad Chandra's work and have focused particularly on the female characters he portrays and invites us to know. He wrote storylines that showed the narrow-mindedness of contemporary Bengali social norms, 
sadly norms that still prevail in many ways today. At least one of his works is well known in India and beyond, his best known novella, Devdas, which has been transferred to the screen many times. I've counted Meghna 12 so far, between 1928 and 2009, but uh, again, there may be more. For those who don't know, Devdas is a sparsely written tale of forbidden and thwarted love, of human frailty, devotion, and strength. Very quickly, Mary, if I can, just quickly say what the plot is. Born into a wealthy landowner's family, Devdas was a troublesome boy who was withdrawn from school and spent much time with Parvati, the daughter of a poorer neighbor. Devdas is, we are told, charming and appealing, yet we see he has a violent temper that he appears unwilling to contain, certainly so in his dealings with his dear childhood friend. That this, girl, that this friend is a girl is significant, that he holds her to account for making him angry enough to beat her is certainly of note. We see early on that Devdas is unwilling to own his behavior to take responsibility for his actions. Parvati is slightly younger than Devdas, and at puberty her marriage has to be settled, not uncommon even today. And her family has the temerity to raise with their wealthy and high estate neighbors the possibility of the childhood friends becoming husband and wife. This option is unhesitatingly rejected by Devdas's parents. Nevertheless, she visits him in his room alone at night to propose marriage. Unwilling to cross his parents, frightened to upset them, um, Devdas wounds Parvati by rejecting her. She then becomes betrothed to a much older man, a widower from a neighboring village, and Devdas is sent by his parents to Kolkata to study. It's only from there and in a letter that Devdas tells Parvati of his decision and that he never had any special love for her, but he expresses sadness for any pain that she may suffer from his decision. In Kolkata, Devdas continues his bumpy relationship with education and begins a very strong relationship, both with alcohol and with a woman who is a prostitute. He is plagued by thoughts of Parvati, doubts uh, over his decisions, and enjoys, and enjoys, I mean enjoys, massive self-pity. He is rude, he is arrogant with Chandramukhi, who is the prostitute, with whom he spends increasing amounts of time and who falls in love with him. Returning to his village for a visit just before Parvati's marriage, he asks her to accept him back. Here again, Parvati doesn't do what an older man tells her to do. She now rejects him, and again, she suffers violence in, at his hands. Um, Parvati then marries and becomes a loving mother to her stepchildren and a devoted and supporting wife as well as a woman of great charity. She houses the homeless, gives financial support to the poor to educate their children. Devdas returns to Calcutta, continues his downward spiral of self-destruction, travels the country, and continues to enjoy his self-pity. Um, he uh, inherits uh, considerable wealth when his father dies and uh, seeing uh, he'd made a promise to see Parvati again, he travels to see her uh, when he's very sick. Doesn't make it uh, and dies uh, close to her house but without having seen her. So she doesn't see him again until he's dead. At a mere 50 pages, Devdas is a succinct dissection of frailty, weakness, of the suffocating effect of custom and of the tenacity, insight, complexity and courage of women. Sharachandra brings us many interesting women, women as wives, women in prostitution, women as independence fighters, as love-struck romantic young women, 
uh, and as caring and devoted mothers. While accepting the roles given to women, they refused to accept them as boundaries for who and how they should be. Sharachandra recognizes that social roles do not imprison minds, nor do they kill the spirit, and he shows us this most excitingly through his female characters. To be a good girl and then a good wife in Bengal, in rural Bengal, 100 years ago, is most easily associated with acquiescence, obedience, and timidity. But his women don't fit that description. And Parvati, too, in this story, does not accept these norms. Stealing away to Devdas's room at night to propose, later on rejecting him when her love comes back to her. And Chandra Mukhi, too, I think offers us some very interesting and humane uh, <coughs> offerings. She's not an easy stereotype of a fallen woman. She is bold and she is warm. Sharat Chandran draws her neither as a pitiable prostitute nor as a happy hooker, as we now <coughs> like to use this phrase, some of us. Rather, like many of us, she's trying to survive in a big and busy city as best she can. Like many women, she has found that men crave women's attention and bodies. Like some women, she has made the bargain that sees her trading these for money. We don't know the backstory of her journey. It doesn't, it's not relevant to, to Sharat Chandra. Chandra Mukhi's first encounter with Devdas must have been for her both shocking and hurtful. In his arrogance, he rushes to judge and condemn the woman whose company he had sought. Yet Chandra sees something in Devdas that immediately appeals to her and which will hold her attention, dedication, and love for many years beyond their first encounter. I think for many women, this mixture of sweet and sour will be familiar indeed, and it brings a sad but realistic story to the, to the book that Chandra Mukhi loves a man who is so immediately and intensely abusive of her is sad but recognizable. She makes herself available to him to care and to support him through his years of descent. Devdas knows both wealth and privilege. It wasn't me. <laughs> but he's not a sympathetic character. He is violent, overflowing with self-pity and lives an unfulfilled life. He hurts both the woman he loves and the woman who loves him. I chose to talk about Sharachandra tonight and his novel Devdas because I believe they speak to a number of Meghnad's interests. I think the struggle for women's freedom is not new and Meghnad invites us to take a longer historical view, with which I agree. The fight for women's freedom is complex and women find their own ways to contest and push the boundaries that so often constrain them. Meghnad invites us to see this contestation through literary as well as academic eyes. There's one other important point I'd like to make about what I consider to be the myopia of experience that's common but doesn't afflict Meghnad. Um, we have had many conversations about experiences um, and Meghnad has told me once he felt he never experienced racial discrimination. Um, it's plainly the case that he has personally not known either the myriad forms of humiliation and ill-treatment faced by women, or drug-dependent persons, or those who suffer torture, or those who are gay or lesbian, unless he has some very well-kept secrets. That justice is a state of being, a project and an agenda that is bigger than each of us, is no unfamiliar message to Meghnad. Rather, it is part of what his work tells us. I hope that one thing we take from him is affirmation, if not leadership, on the need to understand non-discrimination, respect, and fairness being for everybody, not just the person speaking a seeking a better life for themselves. Meghnad's vast range of interests and his various contr contributions to our thinking and work are very special. 
When the world that is overpopulated with conventional thinking tells us not to challenge the status quo or ruffle important feathers, Megnad provides welcome relief and recharging. Thank you, Megnad, for this, for stepping beyond the confines of any one academic discipline, for the breadth of your vision and, being, and for being 70 so that we can celebrate. <laughs> Well, thank you, Perna. I think it's really nice to have a story. <laughs> so thank you for telling us a story. And our next speaker probably needs no introduction. It's Claire Short, who was, in my view, an absolutely great Minister for Development. And development, of course, is also one of Megnad's key interests, and they've been friends for a very long time. So I'm really pleased to have Claire here today. Thank you. There's probably people here who've known Magnad longer than I have, or know his, his work, his scholarship for longer. But I think we all agree that he's distinctively lovable <laughs> and admirable for his scholarship and wisdom and his commitment to making the world a better place. That combination of qualities is unusual and very attractive, and that's our Magnad. Um, there's three, three things I want to thank him for in particular. The first, when I took over responsibility for international development before the 1997 election, the first thing I studied in any depth was the Human Development Report. And that is a superb piece of analysis and work. And Megnad made an enormously important contribution to the creation of that. And that was the globalization of human morality, the seeing of everyone in the world as of equal importance and value, of looking at the global economy as one economy with the capacity to include all or not. The famous figure, I don't know what it is now, of the, the, the five or six billionaires that had more wealth than the 40% 40, 40 of the poorest people in the world. I'm sure the figures are probably worse now. There's a few more billionaires, and they probably have a bigger proportion. So, Megnad, that in itself is, is worth a life's work, and I want to thank you for it. And its resonance goes on working across the world, and has helped to shift the world to that inclusive view of everyone being part of the same human family with the same <coughs> rights. So that's a very fine achievement. The second thing I want to thank you for is Marx's Revenge. I, I was sent it by the publisher. I was in government then, and I was much engaged with trying to work with Rwanda to help it to recover from the genocide and have some prospects of economic growth. And you remember the kind of wars, there were two in, invasions of the uh, DRC, then Zaire, and then Zimbabwe entered the war and Angola entered the war and I was very worried that everyone was ganging up on, on Rwanda who trusted no one. So I thought I'd set off and go and see De Santos in Angola and try and form a relationship between uh, Kagame and De Santos. And I thought, hmm, Marxist revenge. And I put it in my case, thinking this might amuse De Santos. Um, and then, just before I set out, I thought this is too dangerous. I, um, he, he speaks Portuguese. I haven't read the book yet. I, um, he might be upset by it. He might think I'm making a joke about whether he's really a Marxist anymore or not. I will leave it at home. But I read it later myself, and I do recommend it to everyone. The, the sweep of the 
the scholarship and the understanding of left economic thinking and indeed wider political thinking and some of the blind alleys that it went down but also the accessibility of the book. It's, it's, it's a fabulous read, Magnan, and for that, just as a piece of learning and scholarship and summary of all those things that have been learned, I am grateful to you. Um, and then thirdly, far be it from me as a social democratic refugee from the new Labour coup, um, <laughs> but I think someone must thank you for your turbulent and honest and thinking contribution to the life of the British Labour Party. And I think <coughs> you're true to it in a way that many others seem to have forgotten to be. And I think your contribution is long and brave and strong. For example, I think you chaired Chris Smith's uh, constituency for years and brought us Chris when that was a, a marginal seat, one of the finer contributions to, to the House of Commons. So thank you very much for that and thank you for being true to its real values and not getting swept along by recent tides. And the final thing I want to say is that I believe that we're heading for enormously rocky times globally. I see even Mervyn King is still saying the banks are potentially still in trouble and we could have another crisis. I don't know what Charles thinks about that. But certainly when you look at the world and the growth of population and 90% of the couple of extra billion people that are going to be born before 2040, 2050, will be 90% of them will be born in the poorest countries. The poor of the world are urbanizing very fast. I think this is potentially great because urban poor are going to be different to rural poor just as they were in Europe and they're going to be more turbulent and political and the politics of poverty is going to change as they have the power to organize themselves though indeed also there will be the spread of disease and so on and on top of that we have global warming and all the disruption of agriculture and the rest that will come with it and the other shortages of resources and I think the global elites governance of the world is incredibly stupid. <laughs> now, we can do better than this. Politics is never perfect. There are always problems historically, but the potential of these times, the potential of the communications, the technology, the knowledge, the capital, its movability we have in the world, and yet the, the mess that's being made of things currently really is quite a worry. And I thank heavens that three score years and ten is now quite young <laughs> because we're going to need your wisdom and that sweep of knowledge that you summarize in Marx's, Marx's revenge because I do believe there'll be great fascistic impulses and the rest of us are going to have to gather and we'll either make the world more equitable and more reasonably governed or things are going to be very nasty indeed. And I'm glad you're there, Magnad, so we can go on that journey together. Happy birthday. Thank you. Gosh, I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> As always, actually. And now we have our final speaker, Amartya Sen. Final, isn't it? No, Megan's the final, but you're a final semi-final. speaker. He's, he's the semi-final, Amartya Sen, who, who absolutely needs no 
introduction. He's one of the world's greatest thinkers. Uh, he was a professor here. He was, he's a professor at Harvard. He was Master of Trinity. He's a Nobel Prize winner. And everybody here who's a student studies capabilities, development as freedom, and everything else that a marcher's written. And so it's great to have a marcher here again. Thank you. Well, I must say it's him. And of course, he's Magnad's old friend. Ah, good. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is, actually, I've got to mention that, because I've <laughs> known Magnad for about 45 years now. Uh, 47. 47. <laughs> <laughs> you see how acute he had remained, despite their age. Uh, I'm, I'm about six years ahead of him, so I keep uh, from time to time checking whether we are all right. So when I told Magnard after arriving in London yesterday, uh, I called him, and Magnard says, what brings you here? <laughs> 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 so then I reminded him there is a meeting today. <laughs> so it's good to know that you remember the year. Anyway, I met him in, in Berkeley. <coughs> Uh, at the University of California campus. I came there as a visitor. Magnard was um, uh, already established there. And we met and we had a good discussion on politics. His interest was even then similar. After which I'm, I thought that he must be working in, 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 in the government department or something connected with political economy. I asked Magnard, what did he do? And he said he did agricultural economics, which completely floored me. Because <laughs> and I have to say that uh, I watched out, and I think in 2004, eventually, you did write a book on agriculture. So, you know, between 64 and 2004, a mere 40 years. <laughs> um, but it's, the point of importance here is that make that was interested in agricultural economics. He was interested in pretty much anything you can think of. His range of <laughs> interest was extraordinary. I mean, um, not many people could have written a book, admiring book about Marx and admiring book about Hayek, uh, and the both genuinely admiring. Now, I'm slightly skeptical of Magnard's thesis that there's no difference between neoliberalism and <laughs> Marxism. But, uh, you know, I think I take it this is a... I mean, the main thing to recognize, I mean, one of the, one of the two main things to recognize is that Magnus' purpose in economics, uh, I think there's a grand purpose and there's a smaller purpose. The smaller purpose is to, what he says in describing his book about the Marxist revenge, that the purpose of this book is to annoy and provoke. No, that is, and he's admirably successful in that. <laughs> um, and that is very much a part of Bengard. He does not like established conventional beliefs. He wants to shake them. And, uh, you know, often they, I mean, they believe Kumating. I was going to uh, talk about his writing about this film, Hero. But, uh, but since I told Mary, I was going to be a gap filler. I was expecting no one would have talked about but of course now it seems that everyone knows about this, this <laughs> actor who until Magnard wrote a book about him could not have been the, the talk of the town in London. Uh, so it's, 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 he's 
that really brings, us to, brings me to the second thing that he bring out now, namely, actually broaden discussion. I mean, even that neoclassical, neoliberal being the same as Marx is there, at one level provocative, at another level it just broadens the discussion. Have you thought that there might be? And there are some points in it. I remember being struck when I was, many years ago, as an undergraduate in, in, in Calcutta first, reading Marx's volume one of Capital. Very struck at one stage where he asked the question, um, this is in 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 eighteen sixties, saying uh, eighteen seventy actually. Well, the end of eighteen sixty seven. Yeah, when he, <laughs> you see, the and he asked the question: Is there anything interesting happening in the world? It's after some pessimism, and you expect him to talk about the Paris Commune or something like that. None of that. He said the only interesting thing, the only sole interesting thing that's happened, which is in the direction of progress in, in recent, recent decades, is the American Civil War and the liberation of slaves. Now, to think about a man who thought that wage labor is a kind of wage slavery, it is a remarkable departure. And that, of course, raises the issue that, uh, and that's somewhat in the Magnus' direction, but it's not quite neoliberal, I think. It's just that the market economy, in Marx's view, was a major, major advance compared with Absolutely. other things. He remained aggrieved about the, the injustice of the market economy, hence where slavery come in. So I don't think he really turned neoliberal in any way. And I can't help feeling that Magnus wants to both provoke and annoy and inform <laughs> and raise questions. And all these he has done extraordinarily well uh, throughout his uh, life. Um, I was struck by Charles's point that um, Maynard went into direct politics. I like the word. So it made me think what indirect politics might be like. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, I guess I, then I'm thinking about it, I thought that Maynard and I arrive in Berkeley and suddenly the campus, 64, burst into rebellion. Free speech movement happens. What have we done to foment that? The answer is nothing. I think that probably was the indirect politics. We kept away <laughs> and watched it, and it certainly, for me, it was a major rethinking uh, experience of my life. I hadn't expected a thing like that in America. It's totally unexpected. And the, my neighbor um, uh, in, in the house in which I, I had an apartment, we had an apartment, um, began as an extremely conservative and towards the end of when I, um, I suddenly remember being woken up at three o'clock saying, did I have some cash? Because he has to go and bail out some of his students <laughs> from police custody. <laughs> so he was an absolute activist. So I think there are a lot of people were in between direct and indirect. Uh, uh, our indirectness uh, consisted mostly of watching things. Uh, that's not the role that Magnat and Magnat had played, of course, he went to direct politics, but even as a student agitator and student activist in, in Calcutta. Uh, here, yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, which I have not been. But um, uh, in fact, actually, uh, that's not related to his celebration, but I have to say, I have to mention that the Labour Party is one thing I never joined, actually, because the, when I was an undergraduate, 
I was a member of the Tory club, the Liberal club, and the Socialist club. <laughs> and the only reason for it, I was thought I was striking a blow for liberty, because I was told, since I was interested in politics, that there was an economic calculation behind you, why buy a membership, and then you can go to the meeting free rather than paying a shilling each time with a lot of money. And the Labour Club told me that, asked me whether I might be a member of the Socialist Club. So I said, yes, I was. And he said, well, in that case, you can't join the Labour Club. <laughs> you have to resign from the Socialist Club. <laughs> Such was the reach of liberty of Labour Party at that time. <laughs> so I asked the same question to the Tories and to the Liberals, and the answer was, no, no, we have no problem. And I say, I claim to have had some role, slight indirect political role. Mog Magnard I couldn't convert, but I, when I came in contact with the Tory club, um, it was, um, the president was a man called Tam Diel. Uh, and in breaking down in resistance, I think I wasn't the only person, but many of us played a role. And that may be my lasting uh, claim to have been involved in British <laughs> politics, especially when he was retiring as a, after having troubled Mrs. Thatcher on the sinking of Belgramo and so on, and retiring as a, as a, a rebellious Labour uh, father of the house um, yeah. retirement. But um, it, it's the, um, I can't help feeling that Meghna's views probably would have been similar to mine about Labour Club at that time, because it did seem to be absolutely extraordinary that you're not allowed to join another club if you have to be a member, member of that. Um, Meghna's was, uh, the other thing that's worth commenting on, I think, is Meghna's style of commentary. That is, he is always, when he is talking about it, there is a kind of levity about it, which doesn't mean that there isn't a point that he's trying to make. Uh, I can quote lots of his funny statements. But, uh, <laughs> but he is, I, I, in that respect, I thought that he, um, he had something in common with um, one of my other um, friends, and um, older than both of us, who are largely dead now, namely Ken, Ken Galbraith, who had a knack of saying things which were funny, but which were informative. Sometimes um, the informative statements um, could generate skepticism. I remember Ken Galbraith uh, telling me, and then he wrote it in his ambassador's journal about Delhi. He wanted to comment on social life in Delhi. And he said that uh, being, um, <coughs> being, an, um, being um, an ambassador in Delhi is the closest thing get invented to the male chastity belt. <laughs> and I thought it really was a good commentary in Delhi in some way. And I mentioned that to Mary's dad, um, Nicky. And I said, what did you make of that remark? And Nicky looked at me and he said, oh, old Ken, forever showing off. <laughs> <laughs> Which is another aspect of the, <laughs> of the feature. I think the um, economics is a, uh, you know, I think um, following the missiles that Charles described, uh, economics had a destructive role, but economics also has enlivened the world quite a bit. You know, we don't get everything quite right. I happen to think that uh, this country where I've been back now for 
36 hours or so, is heading completely in the wrong direction. <laughs> Can't even begin to understand. I mean, sometimes I could figure out that that's what you had in mind, and it went wrong. I can't really begin to really work that out. Uh, you know, there have been experiences, huge debt at the end of the Second World War, melted away with growth, huge debt at the, at the, at the, at the, at the beginning of the 90s, melted away with the Clinton years of economic growth. But trying to do something where, they, where you not only generate a huge amount of hardship, but actually threatened the one thing that you could get you out of your debt situation quickly, namely economic growth. Is, uh, that seems very difficult to understand. But this is kind of serious economics, and maybe there's some complicated thought behind it, which I haven't examined and which we can. <laughs> but um, there is also an issue of that, that um, um, economics is raising, as Meghnad has, uh, really extraordinary questions. And then uh, they, um, people then come to know of it and they become a kind of parlance. Again, people talk about it. I remember a time when I went to parties and people would say, what did you think about M3? <laughs> and I don't have to say M3. <laughs> and then it, I was reminded that That's economists <laughs> put it into, <laughs> into the business. Now it enlivened the conversation because we could discuss these various things. So I think there are many roles that economics plays. Um, uh, inform, analyze, annoy, provoke, entertain. And the great thing about Meghnad, he's played them all. So <laughs> I think the moment of um, um, uh, our, my ending this statement by saying how privileged I have been, and that's a serious comment, to know Meghnad for nearly half a century now. He says he has advanced by two years. Um, <laughs> when I first came to London, by the way, when I moved to London, I actually stayed in his apartment. I rented his apartment for a little while, and I think he was trying to re-rent it or do something with it. He eventually sold it. But then there came some um, estate agents to have a look at that. So they came, and I gathered from Meghnad, and Meghnad rang me. He said, you know, the estate agent who had never seen Meghnad, didn't look, know what Meghnad looked like. Hey, he said, you know, the apartment is very nice and it's kept quite well, but it does look as if some immigrants have got in. <laughs> <laughs> and if you, if you could get them out, the value of the property will rise <laughs> tremendously. So I think, and, and I told, asked Meghnad what did he say, and he, Meghnad said, I thanked him for his advice, and he said he was fine. <laughs> so, uh, Meghnad, uh, we have, you have a lot of admirers around, but there are some around this table, so congratulations. Uh, actually, Ken Calvert once told me, don't congratulate me when I was congratulating you on a mere 60th birthday. Mm -hmm. And he said, nothing, you don't have to do anything to get older. <laughs> that one thing happened. If you want to congratulate me on my book, then that's different. But when we celebrate like that 70th year, it's all the books, all the things, all the speeches, and all the ways he's made our life more lively. So. We will drink to Meghnad at some stage when there's something to drink. <laughs> <laughs>
was exactly what made Megnad terrific when he was running our centre, that we had a lot of fun, actually. And uh, I'm not sure that we have quite so much fun now. We've, we've got very serious and very professional. But we had lots of fun and lots of discussions and lots of ideas. And that was very exciting. Actually, I think these four have been a wonderful and diverse representation of Megnad's life and work. So I'm going to just hand it over to Megnad. Uh, thank you. Now, you'll have to shut me up. Uh, yeah, because we'll have a few times okay. for people. Well, you know, first of all, uh, you know, Mary was saying about uh, Center for the Study of Global Governance, I should maybe say, that uh, oh, somewhere in the beginning of 1991, uh, some, the, the scientists are very nice people, they're very innocent, and there's a very famous scientist who ran uh, the research laboratory of Imperial Chemicals or something like that. Uh, or Glaxo. Uh, and he had this idea that the world has many problems and science can s solve all problems. Why can't social science solve problems? So he had a rich friend and a rich friend said, well, I'm willing to give two million pounds uh, to have all the problems of the world solved. Uh, and luckily at that time, the LSE director was a, was a chemist by, by profession and uh, John Ashworth. So he invited his friends for lunch. And uh, we were there uh, sort of, you know, because they wanted to talk to social scientists. So they said, uh, can you solve the world's problems? I said, sure, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> so he uh, said, okay, and this had never happened before in my life. He said, we will give you a check of 10,000 pounds to make a proposal of how you aim to set up a research center to solve the world's problems. And he had 10,000 pounds, even then, those days, a lot of money. Uh, and so I said, fine, you know. And uh, so then uh, we made a proposal, which they liked it. And, but the LSE Academic Board was dead against it. Why was somebody giving make that two million pounds? <laughs> what was going on? You know, how could we possibly accept two million pounds from some, you know, you know some, some kind of builder, you know? <laughs> so, it is going to be called the Center for Global Governance, but there was a massive resistance, and someone said, we're not going to let Megdad read the world. <laughs> so I had to be very emollient and modest and pretend all sorts of things, and I said, okay, we will call it the Center for the Study of Global Governance, and everybody was happy, and we got two million pounds, and we got two million pounds. And then, of course, the two million pounds didn't actually arrive. So that's another story. So I, 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 ran, I ran the center until Mary arrived, and, and kind of, you know, money started pouring in from all sides uh, uh, like a leaky roof. Uh, uh, we, I, I, I ran the thing for about five, six years, uh, I think on a, on a wing and a prayer. But anyway, that, that's another, which is why the whole thing was very informal. But thank you very much for organizing all this. I have to thank Harriet. Uh, who is here somewhere. Uh, if she's here, I would thank Harriet very much. She's worked very hard on this, and Polly Vizard, and uh, uh, Kishwar, who is not here, who, who, my wife, who sends her apologies. This was supposed to be a great surprise to me, which it was until about three months ago, when, <laughs> when various people accosted me in the street and said, we are very sorry we can't come to your event. <laughs> what is this? 
Anyway, so earlier, no, I think I think it's 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 great to have uh, such such friends and so many people here and Amartya especially. Uh, it's quite right. I think it's going to Berkeley uh, from from India. I went to. Uh, to Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, got my PhD, and then I went to Berkeley. And those days, I was kind of a number cruncher, a simple number. So that's what I was doing in agricultural economics. I was trying to find out why the price of California milk was higher than the price of Oregon milk. Uh, <laughs> there is an answer to that, but it, it'll take too long to explain. <laughs> anyway, and then this free speech movement broke out. <laughs> and I had kind of a timid, timid, petty bourgeois upbringing in India. That basically you didn't get into trouble, you kept in hospital, you took exams, and you got into civil service, which I by that I avoided getting into civil service. But I, I was absolutely, you know, thrilled and liberated by the free speech movement, which was, uh, which was be, be, being sort of an American event, it was a completely non ideological. And, and there's no case. Trotsky's faction and Maui's faction. None of that. It's kind of, you know, a brigade big liberation thing. And uh, I, I, I'm sorry I have to say, I was slightly less than indirect. I stood bail bond for, for, for a few people, finally, uh, because I was a lecturer at that time and I had some money and they knew me. So. But that meant that if I had asked for a green card, applied for a green card, uh, I would not have got it. Had I got it, I would have been drafted. Uh, because somebody pointed out, I don't know how they know these things, that they have my pictures on the FBI file. I would love to see those pictures, but anyway, yeah, I have black hair then. Uh, so anyway, so I, I took the path of poverty uh, and came to LSE. Uh, uh, you know, and uh, I mean, then it has been the most enjoyable world uh, to be here, because uh, this is literally one of the most fantastic places to work. Because in a sense, it allowed me to do anything whatsoever that I wanted to do. <laughs> I mean, there are there are other departments, other sort of you know, uh, in Cambridge, so you had to kind of declare what your position was on capital theory and on Vietnam, then you could classify it. You were left or you were right as well. And then you could not change your costume. You had to be. I think uh, Mary's father was one of the few people who escaped all those definitions and kind of, you know, you know so, uh, ran rings around everybody. But by and large, you had to declare what you were. And the citizen didn't, didn't care. All they wanted was you publish in refereed journals. <laughs> you could, you know, you could murder, you know, <laughs> burn, burn houses down. Nothing. You publish in every journal, that's fine. And the economics department was was very much with, with a kind of very kind of a liberal place, which didn't actually care about politics. And therefore, I was allowed to be very active in this very room, old theater, which was much uglier in those days, but much more exciting. Uh, and when the, when the 1968, uh, I was actually an honorary president of the Students' Union uh, of, of the London School of Economics, uh, having just defeated Peter Osgood, whom some of you may remember as a great Chelsea football player. Uh, and in a mock election, I, I defeated uh, Peter Osgood as honorary president. So I ended up chairing the most contentious student union meeting they had, uh, which had, which was to decide whether to occupy the LSE or not. And, uh, there I was, 
all these rooms were, there was overfill in the new theater. There were 1,400 people voting. And uh, I think the final vote was 698 to 692 or something like that. Seriously. I think the, the gap was six votes. And I, I, I connected the whole meeting, morally shouted at everybody, kept them under control, as I've done ever since. And, um, <laughs> and that kind of became, I became more or less the year-long sort of, you know, semi-detached member of the student revolutionary movement at LSE. Uh, semi-detached because what I learned from Berkeley was that no faculty member should ever claim to represent students. That way lies perdition you know, and hatred. So I always say, no, I don't represent students. They represent themselves. And so, you know, various things happened. And, and then we had in something, there were some gates on the stairs in LSE to prevent students from going up to the senior common room where they were allegedly some famous painting, which they were not. But anyway, and the students, students tore the gates down. All sorts of very exciting things. You guys are very dull, I, I have to say. <laughs> uh, and I spent uh, the 68, 69, apart from teaching and doing research and all that, I spent a lot of time in this physical building. Many all-night sit-ins. And I didn't quit even when the, uh, the crowd was diminished to 20 because I wanted to be quite sure that if the police ever came to LSC, they would have to arrest me as well as the students. And I always knew that that would be a problem. All through, my department didn't give a monkey about what I was doing. McDonald is fine, They had their doubts. Uh, not so much about uh, my, my politics, but why did I do more than just econometrics, which I was supposed to do? It was hard to do. And I kept on doing other things and then other things. And they didn't understand. At one stage, somebody told me, you know, you should actually change your CV and drop a few items because nobody can believe anybody can do these many different things seriously. He said, they think you're frivolous. Well, I said, tough luck. This is the way I am, and I'm not going to change. But the marvelous thing at LLC was colleagues were always amazing and fantastic. And you could more or less, you know, it's like, it's like playing in a, in a kind of high level soccer or rugby game. When you were running with the ball, you knew somebody was out there who could pick the ball up if you threw that. You didn't have to worry about it. We had colleagues who in any other area were just the best. And you knew they were the best, so you didn't have to worry about it. And, and then the students. I tell you, it's frightening. Teaching at LLC is a frightening experience because you get up there and you know, half of them sitting out there think you're an idiot, you're out of date, you haven't <laughs> read anything lately, you know. Why do they have to get up in the morning to come and listen to you, you know? Uh, and, and so you have to kind of struggle to maintain their attention and maintain their respect. So it's very hard work. You really have to go on renewing yourself, you know, learning all the time, and you're surprising them with new tricks, you know, kind of, and a teacher teach monetary economics when they think you're teaching econometrics or something like that. Give them, give them away. And I think it is the most rewarding experience being, being at LSE. And then, then I, I realized that after the student union, a student revolt uh, more or less collapsed in ignominy, that uh, this was a complete waste of uh, time. I had to join a proper political party. Uh, and since uh, I could not join a, join a Marxist party, I couldn't join a Trotskyist party because uh, 
the idea of Marxist revenge was there long ago. Marx is a non-Leninist uh, person. Uh, one of the that he was pre-Leninist, he's also a non-Leninist. Uh, <laughs> so I joined the Labour Party. Many people thought it was a very strange decision. Join the, actually the Labour Party, they out of your head. But I joined the Labour Party and did all the various boring things Labour Party people have to do, you know, go to ward <laughs> meetings and go to uh, management committee meetings <laughs> and, you know, pass resolutions and, you know, tell Ronald Reagan why he's wrong on something else <laughs> and send it off to Ronald Reagan so he would shake, you know, in his boots. And, uh, <laughs> and the nice, the nice, thing, nice thing about, about uh, the Islington South and Shrewsbury Labour Party was that it was a complete kind of cross-section of all the troubles the Labour Party had. We had many Trotskyist factions, uh, plus the militants. The, the headquarter of militants was in Islington South. Everybody's forgotten what militants were, but I won't, I won't get into that. Uh, and, and then, of course, Chris Smith being gay, we also had the largest proportion of gay members in, in any, any Labour constituency party there was. And, I, and the, the Labour Party headquarters were trying to get us to expel some people. And I took the view that basically if people turned up for Labour Party meetings on a Wednesday evening, their devotion to socialism was sufficient <laughs> and I wasn't going to expel anybody. I managed six years to chair the party without expelling anybody against the deepest desire of headquarters and I think then they finally decided to get me out of uh, being chair so they made me a lord uh, and, uh, and that, that's how you get rewarded for bad behavior. Uh, anyway, so this is, this is uh, and along the way I think also uh, being at LSE, being in the middle of this intellectual ferment. And uh, I mean, I, when, when, I, when, I was, uh, when I was much younger, when in, a teenager in, uh, in India, when the whole the prospect was the best thing I could aspire to was be a civil servant, I always, I always thought it would be fun to be paid to read and write. You know, I thought it was the highest luxury. And I think I'm more or less achieved. You know, being an academic is to be paid to read and write and occasionally speak. But uh, you know, it's, it's a great, great fun. And the life of ideas is, is great, provided you, you kind of venture. Uh, a, so I decided, A, I had to be adventurous, and B, I had to not be uh, someone who made people happy. Whenever I speak, I thought my, my, my one aim is to make, after the end of my lecture, people should be troubled. And, you know, angry or despondent or troubled or, or you know, thinking. They shouldn't go away happy because if they go away happy, then I have failed somewhere. Uh, you know, they really ought to be sort of get out there and do something different than what they've been doing in California or prove me wrong or, you know, things like that. And I think that is also a very good way uh, at LSE because then, then your students come back at you and you're really nice, nice combat and kind of, you know, and then uh, you know, 15 years later, you meet them on the street and you don't recognize them. Said, you told me, and such and such, why did you change your mind? I, said, I told you that. And then I changed my mind. What can I do? You know? anyway, so that's, but anyway, the joy, the joy of friends and the joy of uh, colleagues is great. And uh, the fact that people turn up uh, uh, and, and listen to all this chat is a, is a, is a great pleasure for me, a great uh, tribute for me. Thank you very much. 
and uh, uh, maybe when I'm 80, come again. <laughs> note to end but we do have 10 minutes in case anybody was dying to say something or to add to what they've heard I'm looking around there's somebody there are a couple of people right at the back and one down here so let's just take the two people at the back my name is uh, Vijay Tiwari and I'm from the IS department in there, and uh, my question goes to Professor Amartya Sen. I noted that you have an interest. I noted from your lecture that you have interest. You had interest in politics of India. Uh, I wonder which political system for like Indian political system now is better than before, and what is your message to youth uh, in joining politics? Okay, and we're just going to take the one over here. Yeah. Hello, uh, my name is Gaurav. Uh, this is a question for Professor Sen. Um, in 2001, it's, it's related to start. It's birthday. You, you, no. So it's your funeral. You'll realise the connection. In 2001, Professor Desai wrote an article on you, Professor Sen, um, trying to summarise your work from the choice of techniques onwards to development of freedom. Um, and I was just one. And at the end, he said he couldn't find a place to summarise you in macroeconomist, micro Keynesian, monetarist. And I was wondering, um, but he, he did mention the influence of Tagore. And I was wondering for Professor Desai, what would you think would be the main influence for the, from the 47 years you've known him to have shaped his economic? Ask more questions to him. Yeah. <laughs> so, what 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 Magna Desai's guiding influence would be? So oh, you oh, make nothing influence me. Uh, uh, sorry, sorry. No, so, who do you think was the guiding influence? No, oh, the guiding influence on Meghna. Yes. 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 Well, it's a combination of Marx and Hayek. Believe me, Surely. Yeah. No, actually, that's a very difficult. And Meghna has to answer that question, obviously. That's a, that would no, be. I, 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 I tell you, what the influence is, I basically, I had a college which took place in the morning, 7 30 11. And I never went home. I stayed in the library. Uh, all my four undergraduate years and my two graduate years, I just spent all afternoons in the library. It's a story of misspent youth. And if you spend all your life library, you know, you don't know who influenced you because I just picked up any book that was there, especially if I didn't know the author, especially if I didn't understand the subject. I took it off the shelf and I read it. I might add that this is certainly so we spent a lot of time in in libraries, including the agricultural library, Giannini <laughs> Library. And I have to inform you that um, because of the peculiar cataloging system that maybe Berkeley did or, or maybe the Library of Congress did, uh, among the first books when I went to in, with Meghna to find in the Giannini Library is Grapes of Rot. <laughs> 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 so, um, so I, but I think there was a question from there but about politics. You yeah. see, India. What politics did you want? Which to join? political party? I don't India? want to join any political party. Uh, they, I, I mean, I'm hoping yeah. someday there would be a political party 
that would come up which would be representing. But you know, I've tried to make very simple point. I said, are things moving rightly in direction? I mean, when I was, I mean, there's a one simple point I've been trying to make is that they, they that the market economy achieves a lot and it would be very stupid not to recognize that. But there's a huge lot it does not do. So I've been concerned with gender, with uh, education, with healthcare. But at the same time, the, I mean, when I went back to India from uh, after being, uh, being in Cambridge for 10 years in 1963, um, the role of the state was, of course, enormously extensive in areas where it couldn't do anything and extremely limited in areas in which they could. I remember sitting when I went in to say whether I could keep my permission to have a permission to have the Lloyd Bank uh, account uh, because in those days if you came back to India you have to immediately within 15 days stop it. And I was dispatched by some friend to somebody in the Reserve Bank of India and I thought that he was very nice because I was dispatched by somebody quite good, I think in fact a former director of, of the school here, namely Ayu uh, Patel. Uh, so I was treated with respect and he said, look, uh, you wait here and I'll talk with them, um, I'll do a few things and there was a phone call and he was dealing with the business of giving permission and he said that, oh, so you want to go to Canada to see your sister? I could hear only his side of the conversation. To when did you see your sister last? And he said, uh, Oh, I see, I saw her last year. You know, government of India is very keen that sisters should say sisters. But, you know, once in two years is about <laughs> adequate. <laughs> so I knew the authentic government of India view uh, on that subject. Now, that did seem to me, you see, it was very difficult because people kept on telling me, so where do you stand, against the market or in favor of it? Well, the fact is that if you are worried that, that the state is not trying to do those things which it can't do well, and there are lots of things which it can't do well, which it neglected and improved a lot, there's no question. Uh, certainly, if I was happy with um, things getting better and better, I would be pleased. Uh, um, Jerry Cohen used to tell the story about a, uh, about a controller uh, in, in a university in Moscow who was um, grumbling um, that uh, he was claiming that things are getting better and better and he said you know um, you're complaining but um, uh, two and two makes five that's our position but you know you have to compare it I mean we used to believe two and two makes seven now we believe it's five things are definitely getting better <laughs> so I think from that point of view I'm, um, you're I'm I'm, I'm an optimist, and things are getting better, but uh, I would still like it to go some distance. So, you know, the question you have raised is, is a difficult one. I think there's a lot of ways in which things are moving in the right direction, but a lot more to go. But the very simple point that you don't have to be anti-market to say that the market economy does not manage to do many things at all well. And, and, and it, it's such a simple point. It's amazing that it has taken me 60 years to try to get it <laughs> <laughs> So now we're going to have two very last questions. Address preferably. Yes. This is a, a frivolous question to Meghna. Yeah. 
Does your record of having been sacked three times from the Labour front bench in the Lords still stand? <laughs> <laughs> and then a question from John. Joe, yeah. Hello, uh, Joe Johnson. Hello, Magnanon. Congratulations. Hello. Um, this is actually a question for um, Professor Amartya Sen. You, you, you said you've come back to Britain for 36 hours or so, and you've diagnosed that we're moving rapidly in the wrong direction already. Um, I just wanted to point out that, you know, of course the cuts are very bad, 19% to the unprotected budget. You don't have to do this no, no, for no, 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 uh, no, but, David but, Cameron. But 19% <laughs> cuts to the unprotected budgets, but, of course, partly, that, that would, we could have done much less than that if we hadn't decided to increase our overseas development budget by 37% over the course of the next four years. So what do you do? Would you rather we didn't increase our aid budget and cut less here? It's a tiny budget compared oh to the rest. Of course, but at the margin, well, it makes a difference. Can I? Meghan should have the last word, so can I just answer you quickly? Yeah. Well, first of all, you give me too much credit in saying in 36 hours I got that. You're not unable to read. And I've been following what's happening with a great deal of interest. And, you know, I actually met David Cameron once, and I really got away with him. He was very kind. He invited me to Downing Street. And I came, came away with him very favorable impression of an intelligent, sympathetic man. And that's, of course, one of the reasons why I'm even more surprised about what's going on. Now, to say that it's, all that cut is because something to do with aid budget. At the margin. Uh, well, I mean, at the margin, I mean, how bad can economics be if <laughs> margin is the only thing you think about? No, I think <laughs> the fact is that there is a bigger story. There is a bigger story well known in the world, and I don't know why that story is not more fully understood. Deficits are extremely easy to cut when an economy is going very fast. What you have to do is to make sure that you are proceeding forward. But to do something which not only has, um, uh, has caused tremendous amount of grief, and I was interested to see my classmates with whom I um, uh, sometimes uh, disagreed, actually disagreed originally on the or, or in, in a direction that would be surprising, because Sam Britton, who was a classmate of mine, was, and who was then an active member of the Labour Party, was asking me to join the Labour Club all the time. And then, of course, he himself moved away from that, and I did explain the issue about um, intolerance and so on. But when I read Sam Britton describing all these hardships necessary, which is an article <coughs> in Financial Times, saying things which I could have said, I think to always have something to worry about, because he's not an unsympathetic person, not a pro-Labour hat who is trying to make that point. There is a, you know, I, and I think it isn't in humanity or anything like that, because sometimes very hard things have to be done. But you know, when Churchill is not a favorable character to me, coming from the Empire, uh, in fact, um, uh, not as bad as some of the things I've seen in recent books, but pretty bad. I mean, he did think, for example, that the Indians were the, were the beastliest people in the world next to the Germans, uh, which is a fairly strong league to come out semi-final in. It seems like the Indian position in the, in the, in the Commonwealth Games, coming out number two <laughs> in that. So, but when he was saying, and I'm saying something positive about Churchill now, when he was asking for blood, blood sweat, and tears, one could see why he was seeing, saying that. There was reason for it. There was something to be dealt with, and that was what was needed. Now, I think 
the idea that we need blood, sweat, and tears every now and then, whether or not it will do anything for us, that's the issue that we're concerned with. So it isn't so much the inhumanity. It is a question of what prudence, what, what Adam Smith called, called prudence, what intelligent analysis are we seeing now? That's the question that's in my mind. And that worries me. And I, let me assure you, it's not something that's come to me fresh in 36 hours. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Magnad, no, right, shall no. I before Magnad sure. ask if anybody else wants to say anything? Do you want to I, say something I just want to say that I agree. No, with the aid budget, and by the way, the figures go, no rise, no rise, no rise, and then all the rises in 2014. So, and it's, what, 11, 11 billion, which compared with the health service. I mean, it's good that they held on to that commitment, but really it doesn't explain the rest. But I just want to second Meg Nad's proposal that we should all regather for his 80th. Yes. yes. We should all regather for your 80th. Exactly. Um, <laughs> okay. No, I, I think uh, Sheila, Sheila reminds uh, reminds us that uh, uh, I, I was sacked. Uh, I was sacked twice. Uh, three times. Three times. Three times. Whatever. But you know, I'm, 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 unlike Peter Mandelson, who who is a close competitor with me. Peter, Peter, Peter only got sacked from paid jobs. I got sacked from unpaid jobs. And so I, kind of, I, have, I have that complaint to make. I Hire me and then sack me, so I have the satisfaction of being sacked from a paid job. Uh, now, I, you know, I, I, you know, I think, Joe, you could, you could do better than that, uh, because there is a Hayekian defense of what is going on. Uh, which I will not get into right now because it will take too long for us. Uh, but uh, uh, the nice thing is that in economics we disagree. It would be a very dull subject if all economists say the same thing. And you wouldn't have to hire more than one. <laughs> and then where would London School of Economics be? So, you know, let us enjoy the fact that economics is a, is a querulous subject on with a lot of disagreements. And life is fun when you can disagree and fight and annoy and then enjoy. So that is the purpose of life, to annoy and to enjoy. Thank you. Thank you.